your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We return to Matthew this morning. After a brief trip over to 1 Corinthians last week, we return to the upper room. And to the scenes of our Lord's Passion. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 26, verses 31 through 35. To read that passage, I'd like to ask Abraham to pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written... I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing, too. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are a great love for us. Lord in heaven, we are so weak. But in every moment of our life, we are dependent upon the goodness of us, and our love for us, and how you keep us. How often times am I grateful for these things that you show our life? Amen. This passage here gives us another opportunity to compare the various gospel accounts as they are not identical. They give us different perspective of what is going on, what the Lord says, and, and even what is going on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily see in Matthew's account, but we do in Luke's. It's widely considered that Matthew, being a, being a Jew, wrote his gospel from a perspective of a Hebrew, and predominantly for a Jewish audience. And so it's not surprising that uh, he would quote the Lord's words as the Lord himself quotes the prophet Zechariah. As we read in verse 31, it is written, I, sh- I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. That is from Zechariah chapter 13. And that phrase that is recorded on our Lord's lips here in Matthew 26 actually begins in Zechariah 13 with an exclamation or a proclamation. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate. 
And who is behind, behind all of this? Well, we've already read of the betrayal of Judas. Judas betraying his master to the high priests. And uh, then they will betray the Messiah of Israel to Herod, the half-breed, and to the Roman, Pontius Pilate. And so we might say that the striking of the shepherd is at the hands of Judas. His hands are clearly bloodied by this act. And certainly Peter, in his first sermon that we read in Acts, will lay the blame of our Lord's death upon the Jews, upon the Jewish high priests, upon the leaders, as well as the Romans, who though they were ignorant of all that was going on, were still not guiltless in the death of our Lord. But Luke tells us of a slightly more remote antagonist. And we read this account in Luke chapter 22. Jesus actually directs his attention to Peter first. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. Satan is in the picture here. We've already met Satan because it was Satan who filled the heart of Judas to betray his master, his rabbi. We met him even earlier in the, in the voice of our Lord as Jesus said to his disciples, the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. Satan is in this picture, though not perhaps in the portrait painted by Matthew. Nonetheless, Luke fills in that perspective, that side of the canvas, maybe in the darker hues in the background, with Peter and the disciples painted more boldly in the front. Certainly, Peter painted in the boldest of colors, at least if it was a self-portrait. But Satan is lingering in the background. He's already picked off one. Now he's gunning for the other 11. And I discovered something I amazingly hadn't realized. Primarily, uh, I haven't before read this passage in the Greek, and I don't read the King James. If I read the King James, I would have caught this. But in Luke 22, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat, the you is plural. I always thought it was Simon, but it's plural. You see, Satan is not satisfied with just having gained the heart and the mind of Judas. And he does want Peter, but he wants the other ten as well. You can almost hear Satan at the throne of God. Does Simon fear God for nothing? Does John follow Jesus simply out of love? Does not Thomas doubt that Jesus is the Christ? Let me at him. Let me sift them. He demands, just as he did in the case of Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? The accuser is standing, the accuser of the brethren, standing there before the throne of God and saying, yeah, Simon, he's, he's going he's to die for his Lord. Let me have him. Put him in my hand. And John, he's, he's so in love with his Lord, and his Lord is so tender. Let me have him. And Thomas, yeah, I know about that doubt in Thomas's heart. Let me sift him. I'll show you. And God, and this is a mystery that is hard to comprehend, God allows Satan 
not only to have these men, but to, to demand, to demand that he be allowed to sift them as wheat. And so with Luke's account, we step back a little bit, back into the shadows, as it were, and we see the rulers and the powers and the world forces of this present darkness with Satan at their head. The shepherd is struck down. The sheep are scattered. Judas is guilty. The high priests, the Jews, the Romans will all bear their guilt. But the hand of Satan can be seen on the hilt of the sword. And that's hard for us to understand. It's very hard in our day, modern evangelicalism, focusing as it does on human free will, on a God who is nothing but love, and, who has, and which has largely abandoned all theology of Satan to begin with. We don't look in the shadows anymore. We don't see him lurking there. But he's still there. Our battle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. But against the rulers and the powers and the forces of this present darkness. So who's behind all this? Well, you might say it's Satan. But listen again to the words of Zechariah. Arise, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's not Satan talking. That's not Judas talking. That's not Caiaphas or Annas and certainly not Pontius Pilate talking. That's God. That's who's behind all this. The sword is Satan. But the one who commands and controls it in all situations, whether it be Job or Simon Peter or Thomas or any one of us, is God. Jesus, as we shall see, Lord willing, next week when we go with him to Gethsemane, knew who was behind it all. He knew to whom he would pray to ask that if possible this cup might pass. He knew also who was the ultimate cause of every effect that was coming upon him, every indignity, every insult, every stroke of the rod and of the whip, every prick of the thorn. He knew who was behind it. He knew whose will he would do rather than his own. And it wasn't Satan's. It was God's. Isaiah records in that beautiful passage of the Lord's Passion in Isaiah 53, but it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. It pleased the Lord to crush him. How many would say today, if Isaiah were alive and were to preach those words from a pulpit, my God would never do that. That's not my God. My God is love. My God would never crush or strike or scatter. The devil did that. Israel did that through their unbelief. You can't lay that at God's feet. But that's not what the passage says. It pleased the Lord. And it's not even, it pleased the Lord to have him be crushed. 
Jesus, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is an echo from the Messiah of what that passage in Isaiah 53 says. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Our answer to the modern objections is, well, then your God is not the God of Scripture. He's not the sovereign, almighty, eternal God who does all things according to his purpose. And apart from his purpose and his will, nothing comes to pass. Yes, we have a chain of causes for every effect, including the passion of our Lord, including the sifting of the disciples and the sifting of believers. There is what's called the proximate cause, which means the one nearest by. That's Judas, Caiaphas, Annas, the Sanhedrin, Herod, and Pontius Pilate. They all combine to be the proximate cause of our Lord's woes, of his passion, of his death. They are the ones, Judas betraying Jesus into the hands of the high priest, the high priest condemning him to death, and then... And then um, conniving, conniving to transfer his guilt over into a Roman capital crime, because as we will see, and Pilate says, what does this have to do with me? I find no fault in this man. Go take care of it yourselves. And what did the high priest say? Uh, we're not allowed to kill a person. You see, the Romans had taken capital punishment away from them. And for that matter, they weren't allowed to do it on a high, day, high feast day anyhow. And so their conniving would bring about the transference of his crime from being a religious Jewish offense that the Romans would ignore to being a high crime and misdemeanor of treason that he claims to be a king, that they might bring about his death. There's the proximate cause. That's what we read about. And we're liable when we look at these things and when we look at our own lives to think that those causes that are nearest are actually the ultimate cause. But in fact, we read in Scripture that there is a remote cause to every effect. There is a spiritual malignant. In this case, it's Satan. But we can't say that Satan is the remote cause of every effect. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not everywhere. And frankly, I tend to think that I'm probably too small a fish for him to bother with anyhow. He has his minions. He has his legions of demons. But we have also introduced a spiritual malignant into the world through our own sin. And sometimes the remote cause of the event is our own sin. However, if we are looking at a situation as Job did, and cannot find in himself any justification for what he is suffering, then we must realize that there is a remote cause, a spiritual cause, that perhaps we don't know anything about. We're not told anywhere in the book of Job that Job was informed of that conversation in heaven between Satan and God. And in fact, at the end of the whole story, Job is still left wondering, what was that all about? Except I think he realized what it was all about. I think he, he found that he was sifted as wheat. He didn't know that it was Satan who demanded to do the sifting. 
As far as he knew, it was a, a freak wind out of the east, or it was the Sabbateans, or you know, the, the, the remote causes for his distress, some virus that he was suffering from. Those were the remote causes. And yet he knew, maybe not that there was a remote cause, but he knew there was an ultimate cause. And he knew that cause was eternally good. So that he could say that, that I know that even if I die, that in that latter day I will stand and behold my Redeemer. He knew throughout that he had not abandoned his faith in the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we may not understand the remote cause, though it may be there. And it may be that the proximate cause is our own stupidity, our own arrogance, our own sin. But even if we can determine that the remote cause is the devil himself, we are still comforted and assured in the knowledge that the ultimate cause of all things is God. That though Satan might demand to sift us as wheat, he does not have the right to do so without the permission of our Father in heaven, who will work all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We look at that verse, and that's one of Christianity's favorite refrigerator magnet verses. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. But do we understand that God's working all things together for good is proactive and not reactive? We tend to use that verse and think that, okay, these things are not going well, but I know that you know, God will work all things together for good. He'll come in after the fact, I've really bunged it up, I understand, but God, you will put it all back together for me. That's not what that passage means. It immediately goes on to what we call the chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed in the likeness of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. He's proactive. He's working all things together for good before any of those things even happen. And so the proximate causes and the remote causes are all real. We can't ignore them. But we have to remember there's an ultimate cause of all that happens. And he has an interest in our salvation. And so when we are being sifted, why are we being sifted? To what purpose does God allow the disciples here to be sifted as wheat? It's an important question if we wish to avoid too much of it. Because there is a cause for God to sift. Why do we sift wheat? Well, we don't sift wheat. It's done for us now. But in agricultural cultures in the world today, and certainly in the Middle East in Jesus' day, the sifting of wheat was done every day of the harvest. They sift wheat to remove the chaff and to separate the kernel of grain which is from which they will make the bread with the junk, which includes stones, dirt, leaves, and the shell or the chaff that is around the kernel that is of no value. 
And so they sift it. And the purpose of sifting is to get rid of the bad and to keep the good. So why or what is the chaff that sifting removes? Well, let's, uh, let's look again at Peter. The title of this sermon is Peter the Bold. Peter the Bold. And the subtitle is Peter the Fool. Peter the Bold Fool. And not to denigrate Peter. Because he represents, he is not the only one, he represents an attitude within our hearts, and certainly within the hearts of all of the disciples, that will bring about sifting. And that is self-confidence. Verse 33, But Peter answered and said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Confidence in the flesh. That's a biblical term. And I believe that's what brings on the discipline of sifting. Confidence in the flesh. When we, in our own minds, think, I, I can handle this. I got this. I, I love you, Lord. You're, you're a great rabbi. Uh, I believe you're the Son of God. And there's, you know, there's no way that I'm going to fall away. Uh, I don't care what Zechariah said. I don't care what Satan's demanding. You know, I'm tough. <laughs> if it weren't for the fact that he was in the midst of a truly hellacious struggle with the evil one, we could almost hear our Lord laugh. Pity, pityingly, scoffingly, when he says, really? Yeah, really. You will give me such a complete denial this evening. Three times. That word, that number of completion. Three times. You will deny me before the cock crows in the morning. You're so bold. You don't know what spirit you are of. Or maybe we should say, you don't know what flesh you are of. Self-confidence. Paul knew about this. Later, Paul would be given a messenger of whom? Satan. Isn't that interesting? There's that hand on the sword again. He would be given a messenger of Satan to keep me from exalting myself, we're told. Paul, who was caught up into the second heaven, who saw things of which man is not permitted to speak, would be given a messenger of Satan to keep him from exalting himself. Pride, self-confidence, self-exaltation, to keep Paul from saying, Lord, if all would betray you, not, not me, not me, that spirit of self-confidence. And then Paul would write to the rest of us, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And so, sifting comes. And sifting often comes by a remote cause, by an evil that is not of our own making, by situations that are orchestrated perhaps not by the prince of demons, but by his minions, or by the malignancy of sin that is in the world, by tribulation from those who hate the Lord and his people. There are many remote causes. They can be aggravated by our own proximate causes, 
by our own apathy, by our own, as was pointed out from Hebrews after our Sunday school class, our own drifting away. But really it's from our own self-confidence, our own thinking that we, we can handle this, that we've arrived at a place, and I shared this before about uh, a man very influential in modern evangelicalism. He's since gone on to be with the Lord, and so I know he's been corrected. But he made the comment that since he learned how to fast for 40 days, he no longer sins. Huh. If anything will bring about a sifting, it's a statement like that. And perhaps his sifting was his final illness. Self-confidence. That's pride. Pride brings a fall. Pride is chaff. Self-confidence is dirt. Self-exaltation are stones. These are not things that are going to go into the granary of the Lord. And so whenever we exhibit, and whether we exhibit it or not, if it's in our hearts, what we're saying is, Lord, look at all the chaff. Bring on the sifting. But that's not what we want. Because sifting isn't fun. But we are confident, too confident, in our own flesh. We do think that, oh, this isn't a big deal. We don't need to take this before the Lord. We can handle it. I'm as guilty of that, if not more, than most. But here's, here's the lesson. I mean, this is historical. This happened. But what is the lesson? The lesson is not that Peter was prideful. Because in verse 35 we read, all the disciples were saying the same thing too. Can you just picture that upper room? Jesus, the man of sorrows, listening to that caterwauling of his disciples. No, no, not me. No, 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 not me, Lord. I'll never abandon you. No, 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 no. He might. He might, but I won't. You know, pointing their fingers. Jesus just Head sunk to his chest. Peter. And really saying it to all of them. But they all looked up to Peter. We find out later that, I mean, Peter may not have been the first pope, okay? We're not going that far. But he was certainly the first among equals. He was a spokesman. Now, he had his mouth open and usually put his foot in it before all the rest of them did. But he was the leader. And everybody, you know, everybody looked up to leader. And so when Jesus spoke to Peter... He was speaking to all of them. The scripture says that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Y'all aren't going to be around in the morning. You're going to run. And we find out that's exactly what they did. They did. And we do too. So we have an accuser who stands before the Lord demanding that he might sift us as wheat. But we have an intercessor. We have an advocate with the Father. Again in Luke, that beautiful passage, but I have prayed for you. In Zechariah, I mentioned it in Sunday school, we read that picture, or actually uh, this morning, we read that picture of Joshua the high priest, and there is one who is saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. It's not us rebuking Satan. 
We read in James that we are to resist the devil, but there is one who on our behalf rebukes the devil. The devil wants to keep the chaff. He wants to prove to God our Father there is no wheat in the sieve. That's what he wanted to prove when he demanded Job. You've blessed Job. You've given him so much money. You've given him a large family. He's got crops. He's got herds. He's got respect among all of the other elders. You've, You've put Job in such a situation. Why wouldn't he praise you? Let me have him. Because I know there's no actual wheat there. It's all just chaff. Let me blow on him. Let me sift him. And let's see what's in that sieve at the end of my sifting. And God says, go ahead. God who knows the heart says, go ahead. Because there was chaff. You read through Job, and don't you ever you wonder when Job is talking? Like, I don't think that's quite right, Job. I don't know, I, I thought that. Maybe you haven't. But some of the things Job says, like, hmm, that's a different theology than I get out of the Scripture. It sounds actually like you're defending yourself here, Job. That was chaff. Because at the end, what does Job do? He repents. Of what? God said he was the most righteous man alive. What's he repenting of? Well, I think he's repenting of his self-confidence. I think he fell into. He never spoke ill of God. He never abandoned, he never lost his grip on that confession of hope. But he did kind of defend himself, didn't he? He, he did kind of say, you know what, God doesn't, doesn't have the right to do what he's doing to me right now. And later on, when he hears from the Lord, he repents. And that chaff that the devil said was the sum total of Job's being, the Lord blew away. And what was left was the kernel of wheat, the wheat of grace that God had planted in Job's heart. Jesus knew that that wheat was with Peter as well. He didn't say, but Simon, I have prayed for you and I think it'll work out. He didn't say that. He said, but I have prayed for you. When you turn, strengthen your brothers. Not if you turn, when you turn. Because the prayer of Jesus is more powerful than all the sifting of the devil. One prayer of our intercessor is all it takes. The sifting we have to go through. And perhaps we bring it on ourselves because of our self-confidence, because of our pride. But we have the prayer of our intercessor. We have the advocacy of our righteous one, our champion. And he says, I have prayed for you. When you turn, strengthen your brother. The chaff I will blow away. The wheat will be preserved because he has planted it. It's the seed of his word that he has planted in the heart of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Through adversity, that wheat will grow. Tares will be planted alongside that wheat. But what we learn from passages like Matthew 26 and Luke 22 and wisdom literature like the book of Job is that he is praying for us. 
And because of that, and I think maybe this is the wind that blows away that chaff of self-confidence, because of that, not because of our own endurance, not because of our pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but because he prays for us, we will always return. And when we return, I think that commandment is to all of us, strengthen your brethren. And when you see, and when we see one another exhibiting self-confidence, maybe we just need to do one thing, just go, Let us pray. Father, we cannot thank you enough for our advocate, for our intercessor. The thought of our Lord Jesus Christ at your right hand, rebuking the devil on our behalf, turning to you and saying, Father, I have prayed for him. I have prayed for her. And knowing that that is enough. For our confidence is not in our self, not in our flesh. And our boldness is all in Jesus Christ. So Father, we do pray that you would allow us to meditate on Peter the bold, but also Peter the returned to see what becomes of Peter, the humility, the steadfastness, the one who does not call himself the Pope, but rather a fellow believer, a fellow elder. We see what the sifting did for him, and we're almost tempted to ask that that sifting might come upon us, and yet we know, Father, that it is a very painful process. So we would ask that by your grace we might learn humility through your word, through the example of Peter and the other disciples, that we might understand from what they had gone through that pride does indeed go before a fall. But Father, through whatever sifting you do bring in our life, may we not forget nor ever lose sight of our intercessor at your right hand praying for us. We thank you and we praise you to all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and receive the benediction this morning from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.